Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Here are today's top stories. After a lot of hinting and commenting, President Joe Biden makes it official. The Democrat is taking another swing at the nation's highest office. And Americans are split on this. Some say they are fully on board with the president, while others disagree. Democratic primary debates. We might not see any before the 2024 presidential election. Candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is sounding alarm bells. Reactions to Tucker Carlson parting ways with Fox News. Find out what media analysts think about his departure and what could come next. President Biden is officially running for re-election in 2024. His announcement today comes four years to the day after he launched his 2020 presidential bid. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the details. Freedom. More freedom or less freedom? That's the decision President Biden says Americans are facing. His campaign launch video makes reference to so-called book banning and abortion access, while also showing images of the January 6th Capitol breach. Around the country, MAGA extremists are lining up to take on those bedrock freedoms. Biden faces challenges that were not present during his initial campaign. The president's handling of the nation's economy has been a source of concern for many Americans since late 2021 due to stubbornly high inflation and ongoing recession fears. A legal inquiry continues into Biden's handling of classified documents from his time as vice president. And Biden's age, currently 80, has become an issue of increasing focus. University of Chicago professor William Howell points out that Biden will be closer to 90 than 80 if he serves out the entirety of a second term. And this raises lots of concerns, justifiable concerns in my view. While repeated speaking gaffes have raised questions about his mental fortitude. It's more the kinds of things that might betray um, declining mental acuity. But aging research professor Stephen Ostad had a more optimistic view. Records for aging are being set all the time. You know, we now have a, a, a hundred-year-old marathon <laughs> record. While Chapman University professor Lori Cox-Hahn says bringing in reinforcements could help Biden's campaign. You're going to have to rely probably on Kamala Harris quite a bit. The University of Virginia's Barbara Perry believes that Biden's the right choice if the nominee across the aisle is former President Donald Trump. Typically in the polls, it has shown that Joe Biden is the one Democrat who can defeat Donald Trump. At 76 years old himself, Trump is not a young man either. Some polls suggest that Americans don't want a repeat of the 2020 election. A CNBC All-America Economic Survey found that about 60% of the public thinks Trump should not seek the presidency, with 70% feeling the same about Biden running for a second term. Other challenges Biden is facing include the escalating crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border, the Russia-Ukraine war, and Communist China's growing influence and potential invasion of Taiwan. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. For a review of Biden's economic policy over the past two years and the impact on Americans, tune in to our business show at 5 o'clock with Don Ma. With President Biden's announcement, a renewed focus falls on Vice President Kamala Harris, and her time in office has earned her mixed reviews. However, Reuters White House correspondent Jeff Mason says Harris isn't going anywhere. President Biden 
picked Vice President Harris for a reason. He promised to choose a woman and a black woman. And that reason hasn't changed, even though Democrats are not all entirely happy with how the first couple of years of her performance in office has gone. They still need, and he still needs to have that symbolism and, and those voters that she helped bring uh, to Biden's coalition, black voters, women voters. Uh, he needs that in 2024 as well. Democrats who spoke to Reuters, including some who work in or have worked in Biden's West Wing, expressed disappointment about the vice president's first two years in office. Some of the complaints that I heard, and this was from, these were from fellow Democrats, include that she doesn't necessarily rise to the occasion, um, that she doesn't, isn't seen as someone who takes things off of President Biden's plate. The issue of immigration uh, from the three Central American countries that she was tasked with by the president, um, that has become a lightning rod or helped make her a lightning rod for Republicans for whom immigration is a, is a particularly uh, important issue. Mason says the president's advanced age has also brought Harris under more scrutiny. Because her launch, as it were, has not gone exceptionally well, that's one reason Democrats are a little concerned that she's his running mate, because unlike some previous administrations where there's always a chance that something happens to the president um, and the vice president would have to take over. But in this case, with someone at Biden's advanced age, the, the possibility is even greater that she might have to take over. And that's a concern. And it's a concern for uh, people who don't feel she's done super well. There is at least some frustration from the West Wing and, and perhaps from Biden himself that she hasn't shined more, and that's on their radar. What does the public have to say about Biden's re-election bid? On the streets of New York City, some endorsed the president despite his age, while others were not convinced. I'm excited for him to run. Uh, I think it'll be good. Uh, He's got a proven track record against Trump, who's most likely who it's going to be. Uh, so we're, I'm excited to have him uh, run again, see who uh, potentially goes against him, and kind of see what the outcome is. I, I try to be open because I would never tell anyone, you know, as long as they have fight and drive in them to just give up. I, I want you to keep fighting. That's what keeps people alive. That's what keeps people going. So as long as he has that drive and that will, absolutely, just do it. It's either that or, like, you know... A march into like a fascist nightmare, <laughs> basically. I mean, I mean, I'm also happy that um, we have someone with so much experience that's willing to do the job, even though really he should just be enjoying his family and his, you know, his grandkids or whatever. I don't think he needs to run. I think he's way too old. I think there needs to be an age limit because I think as you age, you're capacities aren't where they should be. I think he's a failure, and if he wasn't in office, this economy wouldn't be messed up. Former President Trump is also responding to Biden's announcement. The Republican candidate gave a none-too-rosy assessment of Biden's presidency. In a statement, Trump said President Biden has hurt America much more than the five worst presidents combined. He calls Biden the most corrupt president in American history and said Biden hasn't received any retribution for his actions. Trump repeated his statement that the Ukraine invasion wouldn't have happened if he was still in office. 
He said Biden has humiliated America on the world stage and that it's almost inconceivable that Biden would run for president again. He also says Biden has led the world to the brink of World War III. Speaking of Trump, a Georgia district attorney says she intends to announce potential indictments resulting from a probe into the former president. The subject is alleged interference in the 2020 election. DA Fannie Willis wrote she would announce the charging decisions between July and September. The probe is believed to center on a 2020 phone call. Parties included Trump and his legal team, as well as Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his team. Trump allegedly told Raffensperger, quote, All I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have because we won the state. Willis characterized Trump's wording during the call as evidence of criminal disruption in the 2020 election and has based her case on charges around that allegation. Presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. slamming the idea of not having primary debates. He says not having them would show that the U.S. elections are indeed rigged. Here's his take. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., nephew of the late President John F. Kennedy, criticized the Democratic Party for reportedly not holding primary debates. That's in regards to the 2024 presidential election in which Kennedy is running as a Democrat. The Washington Post reports that the Democratic Party has no plans to sponsor primary debates, although there are multiple candidates. Kennedy on Monday told the Epoch Times that not holding primary debates would indicate that the nation's elections are rigged. As he puts it, debates and town halls are part of the democratic process. Americans think the entire system is rigged against them, adding that cutting debates will serve as an unfortunate confirmation to a lot of Americans that the system is indeed rigged. Kennedy's comments came a day before President Biden officially announced his 2024 re-election campaign on Tuesday. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. Biden's announcement brings the number of candidates up to three, including Kennedy and author Marianne Williamson. The JFK descendant made clear those candidates have to present themselves, saying you need to let the public decide who they want for leadership rather than party commissars, like they did in the Soviet Union or in China. Marianne Williamson weighed in on the matter as well, writing, the DNC plans no primary debates, as though there simply are no other candidates. Progressive activist Nina Turner, a former surrogate for Bernie Sanders' presidential campaigns, also slammed the idea, writing that it robs the voters of choice. In her words, no one who feels confident in their record and or ideas would hesitate to stand on them. We reached out to the DNC for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. So far, no incumbent president has ever been defeated by a challenger from his own party. That's since the modern primary system was created in 1972. Another election is coming up. California Governor, current Lieutenant Governor Eleni Kunalakis announced her campaign for governor yesterday. California will elect a new governor in 2026. The state's current one, Gavin Newsom is serving his second term, and California's constitution has a two-term limit for governors. Kunalakis regularly serves as acting governor when Newsom leaves the state. She was first elected to her current position alongside Newsom in 2018 and won her re-election in 2022. 
She's the child of Greek immigrant parents, and she served as ambassador to Hungary for three years in the Obama administration. Coming up, what's the future of the U.S. dollar? Are countries shifting away from it? And what impact could this have in America? We'll unpack this with an economist. And a New York City man hopes to make an example of big city off-the-grid living. Find out how he makes it work. More in just a moment, here on NTD News Today. Let's now take a look at the big shakeup in media yesterday. Fox News announced Tucker Carlson is parting ways, and CNN host Don Lemon was fired. The departures took many by surprise. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg brings us some reactions from media analysts. It's not yet clear why Fox and Carlson parted ways. The Washington Post cited anonymous sources saying Fox CEO Lachlan Murdoch and Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott decided to fire him Friday night. The LA Times reported the call came from Fox owner Rupert Murdoch with input from company officials. I think Tucker Carlson was, uh, you know, had become a liability to the company, a financial liability, obviously. Carlson's executive producer, Justin Wells, is also out. If you think about Tucker Carlson and Fox News as a couple, they seemed really solid. Um, like nobody anticipated this. None of the media reporters that I talked to on a regular basis knew this was coming. They all found out at exactly the same time. And um, that is what makes it so much of a shock. I will say that it is shocking. Like, but Fox has done this before. Fox fired former news anchor Bill O'Reilly in 2017. That was over sexual harassment allegations. The network didn't miss a beat. Carlson was moved up into the primetime slot. Some industry analysts speculate he could choose to monetize his personal brand through social media or his own platform. The traditional news organizations aren't the only way to reach a mass public anymore. I don't think we've certainly heard the last of him. You know, there, there are a few places that he could land. Uh, you know, maybe Donald Trump, maybe Truth Social will start a, you know, a, a digital video channel of some kind. Others aren't so sure that would be the best move for the popular host. When Donald Trump left Twitter and went to Truth Social, his audience did not follow him, right? Truth Social is, is a minuscule amount of the people that he was speaking to on Twitter. Um, Newsmax does not have nearly the distribution that Fox News has. So it, it would be impossible for them to get the type of audience that Fox News has amassed. I think a lot of examples of somebody trying to do this and failing. Now, I, I would suspect that he might try to um, build on these this sort of triumvirate of books and podcasts and, you know, something that's more of a subscription base that goes to him without a news organization around it and monetize his personal brand. We'll be back on Monday. In the meantime, have the best weekend with the ones that you love, and we'll see you then. Tucker Carlson Tonight was the most watched program on cable news every weeknight, with the highest rating in the key age demographic of 25 to 54. It averaged over 3 million viewers per episode last year. Fox shares dropped 4% within seconds of the announcement of the host's departure, but regained some ground by the end of the day. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Well, one thing is sure here. Tucker Carlson is now one of the hottest free agents in cable news. At least two TV networks are weighing the possibility of hiring him. Conservative news agency Newsmax and San Diego-based One American News, or OAN, have both signaled their interest. 
OAN CEO Robert Herring is looking to meet with Carlson for negotiations. The company said on Twitter that Fox News' loss could be OAN's gain. In an interview with Bloomberg, Newsmax CEO Chris Rudy said he had the same wish, adding Fox's decision to part ways with Carlson didn't make sense in light of his large viewership. Back at Fox, the network is filling Carlson's slot with rotating hosts until a permanent one is settled. Fox and Friends co-host Brian Kilmeade was the first person to step in Carlson's shoes last night. He briefly touched on the surprising departure of his predecessor before proceeding with the new show Fox News Tonight. Turning to California, a harsher penalty for fentanyl deaths is getting another chance to become law as over 100 Californians die from fentanyl per week. The bill proposes writing a warning for anyone convicted of a fentanyl-related crime. The warning would include the dangers associated with the drug and the criminal consequences, similar to one given to drunk drivers. The original proposal wouldn't require the dealer to know if fentanyl was present or not. Fentanyl is now often mixed with other illegal drugs, and a drug user might not be aware of its presence. Fentanyl is responsible for approximately 115 deaths per week in California. The U.S. Justice Department says that nearly 29,000 pounds of the drug seized in California in 2022 is enough to kill more than two-thirds of the planet's population. North Dakota is banning nearly all abortions. Republican Governor Doug Burgum signed a bill yesterday that bans the procedure throughout pregnancy. The ban has exceptions during the first six weeks of gestation. Abortion in the state will only be allowed in cases of rape, incest, or medical emergency in those early weeks. The law will take effect immediately. North Dakota no longer has any abortion clinics. The state's only facilities shut its doors in Fargo last summer. It moved across the border to Minnesota, where abortion is still legal. The clinic's owner has a lawsuit challenging North Dakota's previous abortion ban. They say the law is unconstitutional. The ban is also expected to face legal challenges. Some countries are calling for a shift away from reliance on the U.S. dollar. It's called de-dollarization. China and Brazil agreed to trade in one another's currencies a few weeks ago, advancing this trend. I wanted to learn about what's driving this and what it could mean for the U.S. economy, so I spoke with Peter Earle economist with the American Institute for Economic Research. Have a look. Peter Earle, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. So why are we seeing this trend towards de-dollarization? I think there's two major reasons for it at present. Um, the first has to do with the growing use of the dollar as a tool for sanctions. Um, it had been used against Iran, but more recently, uh, when several major Russian banks were kicked out of SWIFT, I think a lot of nations noticed and they realized that their exposure to the dollar, which is the global reserve currency, could wind up being sort of an Achilles heel. Um, another factor is the growing sort of errors and problems uh, uh, in monetary policy in the U.S., where the Fed has, uh, you know, it's numerous mistakes over the last few years, including creating huge amount of inflation and then delaying um, its uh, fighting it and then finally uh, fighting it so aggressively that we destabilized the financial system in the U.S. So uh, those are the two major reasons why I think many nations now are looking for alternatives to the dollar. 
understood, so people are feeling some sense of uncertainty. So, mm -hmm. um, in your mind, what would you say, um, would you say de-dollarization is inevitable? No, I don't think it's an inevitable. Uh, I, I mean, to the extent that there are nations that uh, want to pursue their own foreign policy uh, or want to uh, kind of be clear of the errors of another nation's central bank or other things like that, there's certainly uh, there's going to be an instinct or an incentive to look for substitutes. But I don't think it's it's inevitable that uh, the dollar will remain uh, sort of the preeminent um, currency for use in uh, international transactions and for settling currencies and as a of account or that sort of thing. So let's just say that um, it does happen. We do we do head towards uh, de-dollarization. What what effect would this have on the U.S. economy in the short and the long term, and um, for big and small businesses? So first, um, this is something that would take, unless there was some sort of uh, sci-fi or apocalyptic scenario, this is something that would take decades, if not generations. But let's assume that it were to happen. Uh, what we would notice is there'd be less demand for the dollar, which would probably mean that uh, the dollar would lose some value. But I think the bigger impact would be that with less dollars in use, there'd be less demand for U.S. Treasuries. And what that would mean is that, first of all, yields would go up on Treasuries, but also the government would have to find, the U.S. government, of course, would have to find other ways of raising money. And that might mean more inflation, might mean higher taxes, that sort of thing. Um, the ubiquitous role and the sort of endless, not really endless, but high demand for the dollar uh, feeds into our, our, our prosperity in a lot of ways. And if that were to disappear, we would notice some changes in the long term, like such as I just mentioned. And how would that affect the balance of power internationally? Well, I mean, the uh, the nation that has the, uh, the the global reserve currency has sort of what's called uh, an exorbitant privilege. That's what it's been called before. Um, to a certain extent, if there are nations that use that currency, just like there are nations that use the British pound when it was the global reserve currency, and there are nations that use the dollar today, a certain amount of inflation can be exported. Also, uh, a constant uh, appetite for U.S. Treasury securities because of the dollar, and nobody wants to hold dollars without getting some interest on it, uh, means that there's an appetite for debt and other securities. So um, there are a lot of privileges that, uh, that that arise from that status, but um, nothing insurmountable and certainly nothing that would make uh, a nation that became the global reserve currency issuer a power overnight. There's many other aspects to that, uh, to that role. Understood. Peter Earle, economist with the American Institute for Economic Research, thank you. Thanks for having me. sustainability practitioner Joshua Spodak has experimented with living unplugged and free from reliance on the electric grid. Instead, he generates his own electricity and avoids packaged goods. NTD's Colin Fredrickson brings us more. Joshua Spodak is an author, professor, executive leadership coach, and host of a podcast called This Sustainable Life. He decided to limit the luxury of dependence on the electrical grid while living in his New York City apartment. This time last year, I had not yet unplugged. I was plugging into the wall. I would try not to use power more than necessary, but I had no sense of how much things used. Right now, I'm using a tiny fraction of what I used before, but because I made it through the winter solstice and now we're past the equinox, I, I really feel drunk with power. He depends on charging a small portable solar panel array. He uses it to charge a power bank, which he then uses for all his electricity needs. It charges his laptop and the instant pot that he uses to cook all his meals. 
what I've discovered by actually doing it is what no one, everyone thinks the opposite. Everyone thinks, oh, it's a burden, it's a chore. It's glorious. It's more delicious. It saves money. It's fun. He says that now that he's managed to survive the winter living off the grid, the rest is easier. In winter months, when the sun is low, he could not always guarantee getting enough sunlight to charge his power bank. In the winter, I can only go up at like 11 to 3 maybe. And the sun is low on the horizon, so I'm, I, I'm lucky if I can get a full charge. Now I can come up, I can come up at 9 a.m. and start getting serious charge that I can only get at like noon. And that, that's good until like 5 or 6. Spodek also volunteers to help others eat a healthy diet and maintain a sustainable lifestyle. He supports a community refrigerator and stocks it with healthy food that others can take for free. He gets leftover food items from restaurants and grocery stores. He says he occasionally gets pushback from people who say living electric grid free is impossible. The sustainability guru is hoping to show them otherwise, using himself as an example. Coming up, China's COVID policy troubles come and continue. Hundreds of new subvariants have been discovered in the country. And impossible to pay off debts, the first province in China openly asked for Beijing's help. How did Beijing respond? We'll have the details soon when we return. China's struggle with COVID-19 continues. New reports say hundreds of COVID variants have been discovered in the country. Here's the story. Over 270 COVID-19 sub-variants emerging in China within seven days. The country's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention made the announcement last Saturday. Authorities discovered the sub-variants from April 14th to 20th. That's as Chinese media reports say residents are posting their positive virus test results online, revealing that many are getting reinfected. In a social media post, an internet user from southwestern Chongqing shared that her husband and two children caught the virus once again, though so far their symptoms have been mild. In another post, an internet user from Nanjing said her entire family was reinfected. That's about three months after they fell sick the first time. Someone from Guangdong also posted their test results. Like many others, the person reported mild symptoms. A prominent Chinese virologist gave his take on what's going on. Dr. Zhang Wenhong is the director of the Department of Infectious Disease at a Shanghai hospital. He explained that if the virus were to mutate, reinfections would start appearing about half a year later, and usually on a limited scale. But if that mutation changed enough to break through the human immune system, then the trend of reinfections could be enough to form a second wave. With debts running deep, a province in China is openly pleading for Beijing's help. The landlocked Guizhou province in southwest China went public last month with its debt relief woes. Here are more details. In an article published by province leadership, officials said it's impossible to solve the debt problem effectively on its own. The report was soon deleted. 
This conclusion drawn by authorities at the Development Research Center. The office is a policy advisory body and part of China's local government, but it operates directly under the state council, the communist regime's highest executive organ. The report also sought intellectual support from the state council to address the debt issue. Just how big is its bill? Guizhou left a total of $180 billion unpaid in 2022, more than 60 percent of its GDP that year. That debt averages out to nearly $5,000 for each resident. Much of the overborrowing grew out of so-called government financing vehicles. These platforms allow officials to bypass lending restrictions and fund local infrastructure projects done through opaque channels. That's in efforts to impress Beijing after its call for growth in recent decades. Adding to the cash drain, three years of pandemic control and the country's real estate turmoil. An expert weighs in on the issue. Real estate sales, you know, almost, you know, uh, were cut in half, you know, or more. And the Chinese local government who used to re rely on land sales and you know, real estate development to get their revenue to support their you know, municipal budget or provincial budget are not able to do that, to sustain that. Despite the piling deficits, Beijing has signaled it won't come to the rescue. Earlier this year, the Ministry of Finance warned local authorities that they should handle so-called local issues themselves, saying, if this is your child, you should hold it yourself. It's truly a national problem. If the central government needs to help Guizhou province, they're going to have to help you know, all other provinces, and uh, I don't think they have the money to do so. Last year, the northern city of Hagong became the first Chinese city to go through financial restructuring due to severe debt problems. Beijing asked it to stop hiring new employees and sell its assets. In June of the same year, wealthy eastern provinces like Guangdong, Zhejiang, and Jiangsu slashed civil servant wages, the amount by up to 30%. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. When we come back, the WHO announces a biohazard risk in Sudan fighting forces occupy a lab. And with a new ceasefire, many people are expected to flee the country. And today is Liberation Day in Italy, celebrating the fall of Mussolini and the end of Nazi occupation during World War II. We'll hear from a 100-year-old who guarded the dictator, here on NTD News Today. Both sides in the Sudan conflict have agreed to a three-day nationwide ceasefire. It's the first real reprieve since the fighting began on April 15th. The agreement between the Sudanese armed forces and rapid support forces followed intensive negotiations. The pause in fighting allows humanitarian aid to reach people in need and grants citizens and residents a chance to reach hospitals and safe areas. It also lets foreign diplomats and aid workers evacuate, among others. Officials hope the ceasefire could serve as the basis for a permanent end to the conflict. The fighting has killed at least 460 people, including five aid workers. Over 4,000 are injured, and thousands of foreigners are stranded in the country. The latest conflict in Sudan has brought with it a new risk. The World Health Organization is warning about a potential disaster after fighting forces occupied a health lab. 
with the electricity shut down and with no technician taking care of all these, the risk of biological hazard is high in Khartoum because of the occupations of the lab by one of the fighting parties. The WHO representative spoke via video link from Sudan. The clashes have paralyzed hospitals and other essential services. Many are stranded at home with dwindling supplies of food and water. The UN Refugee Agency is making plans for a scenario where hundreds of thousands of people spill over Sudan's border to escape violence. It includes people who were already in Sudan as refugees from an earlier conflict. Officials in the neighboring country of South Sudan say 10,000 refugees have already arrived. Staying in Europe, a German magazine fires an editor for publishing an interview generated by artificial intelligence. The magazine apologized to Michael Schumacher's family for the made-up interview. The publishers said the article was tasteless, misleading, and never should have appeared. The magazine's editor-in-chief, who has been in the position for over 10 years, has been dismissed. The latest edition of Die Aktuelle ran a front cover with a picture of a smiling Schumacher and a headline promising Michael Schumacher, the first interview. Inside, it emerged that quotes had been pronounced by AI. Schumacher's family said last week that they were planning legal action against the weekly magazine. Seven-time World Formula One champion hasn't been seen in public since he suffered a serious brain injury in a skiing accident over nine years ago. His family maintains strict privacy about the former driver's condition. What was it like to guard Italian dictator Mussolini? An officer tells us about his secret mission and the arrival of German paratroopers. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the story. April 25th is Liberation Day in Italy. The public holiday celebrates the start of the fall of Benito Mussolini and the end of the fascist regime and Nazi occupation in Italy during World War II. Mussolini was ousted from power in Rome in July 1943 after Allied forces landed in Sicily. The next month, the deposed leader was taken to Campo Imperatore. Ferdinando Toscini was there. Now 100 years old, he was one of Mussolini's guards. I had a chance to see Mussolini up close, and I looked him right in the eyes. He was truly a broken man. You could see that he had no will to live, and he certainly had his reasons. He understood what awaited him. German paratroopers rescued Mussolini on September 12, 1943. I was in my room resting, and I heard, the Germans have arrived, the Germans have arrived, the Germans... We were surprised because we had no idea what could happen. I looked out of my window and saw some gliders, particularly one that was in front of me. Despite his rescue, Mussolini knew it was the beginning of the end. Mussolini. Mussolini looked out of the window before he even saw the Germans, and it said, although I didn't hear it directly, that after all that noise, he asked, who are they? It was assumed that he didn't want the Germans to arrive, but the Americans. And that's because at that time, Mussolini knew very well that his life was over. The Germans established a puppet regime in the north of Italy. But with the defeat of the Nazis looming in 1945, Mussolini attempted to escape to Switzerland. But Italian partisans captured him on April 27, 1945. He was shot early the next day. 
Tashini continues to tell his story to his four children, nine grandchildren, and seven great-grandchildren. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. This year's Wimbledon tournament features new restrictions for both players and fans while the war in Ukraine continues. Our grounds entry terms and conditions have been updated for this year and that will prohibit uh, any Russian or Belarusian flags being brought into the grounds as well as any other symbols or signs of support for the war or the two regimes. Wimbledon announced last month that it has lifted its ban on players from Russia and Belarus. However, to compete this year, players from the two countries must agree to compete as neutrals and not to make statements supporting the war or the regimes involved. Wimbledon and other British grass courts tournaments stood alone in barring Russian and Belarusian players last year. Wimbledon club chairman Ian Hewitt said the U-turn on the policy had been the hardest decision on his four years on the job. Coming up, at the Railway Museum in Madrid, passengers board a historic train bound for a royal palace. Actors play the parts of railway officials and travelers. And in Italy, scores of previously unseen Roman artifacts are now on display. Visitors to the Roman Forum can view a variety of antiques. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Welcome back. An American-style lager that for years has been marketed as the champagne of beers is getting a chilly reception by a group of French wine producers. Belgian authorities destroyed a shipment of more than 2,300 cans of the American brew, Miller High Life, last week. A French trade group that guards the official use of the word champagne said the slogan on the label runs afoul of EU protections. The shipment intercepted, intercepted in Antwerp at the beginning of February was headed for Germany. A historic railroad journey to a Spanish palace takes visitors back in time. The strawberry train takes passengers through strawberry fields where they can sample the succulent fruit. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the journey. At the Railway Museum in Madrid, passengers board a train bound for the Royal Palace of Aranjuez. Queen Isabel II ordered the construction of the railroad in 1851. What I like the most is the experience of traveling on a train from the last century in the wagons in which the kings have traveled. It is a unique experience of feeling the past while traveling. Aranjuez is just a 45-minute journey from the Spanish capital. Actors play the parts of railroad officials and travelers mingling with the day's passengers. With 45 million reales, the Marquis of Salamanca founded this railway in honor of Maria Cristina, the one mentioned in the song, you know, the mother of Isabel II. By this train, we are going to Aranjuez as Olympus gods. In Aranjuez, we will enjoy one of the most beautiful cities. These train cars are wooden, have balconies, and date back to the 1920s. Historic trains manager Miguel Jimenez explains that the carriages weren't built for comfort. 
Four of its rail cars have practically a century of history. They are completely wooden carriages, except for the rolling stock, which is obviously made of steel. They were third-class rail cars that were originally used for short trips in the Mediterranean area. That's why they were called Costa cars. As the train passes strawberry fields, passengers try the refreshing fruit. Farmer Francisco Nieto says the train allowed madrileños to enjoy them at their freshest. It has an acid sweetness which is well liked. You don't get tired of eating them. And it has always been like that. Years ago, even before I was born, practically all the farmers in our own Juez, there were more than there are nowadays, cultivated this fruit and they carried them to the Madrid market. Aranjuez was declared a World Heritage Cultural Landscape in 2001. The small city is located on fertile soil where the Tahoe and Hamara rivers converge. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A treasure trove of previously unseen Roman artifacts are on display at the Colosseum's archaeological park in Rome. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on the hundreds of relics. For the next few months, Visitors to the Roman Forum can view a sampling of statuettes, urns, and other antiquities, all plucked out from storerooms in the heart of the Italian capital. The objects that are on display today come from our storerooms, from our warehouses where they have been for many years. We wanted some way for these objects to emerge, objects that would otherwise be invisible to the wider public. A taberna is an ancient, cavernous commercial space. Three of them now double as exhibition rooms. These spaces are now dedicated to conservation, also to study and research, to have a library of objects where researchers come to catalog and study this material. But these rooms are also accessible to the public through the organized visits that the park will have every Friday. In one taberna, rows of ancient colored dice are on display, 351 in all. In the 6th century BC, they were tossed into wells as part of ancient rituals. We are talking about jugs, objects of everyday life, for example jugs for water that were needed for drawing water in a later period, or instruments of work coming from a taberna, from the Emilia Basilica along the Via Sacra. So we are talking about objects that tell a story of daily life. One exhibit features a largely intact male skeleton. He was about five foot four and lived in the 10th century BC. Before the foundation of Rome, then during the founding, there are these tombs that precede the period when the Forum was transformed into a political, economic, and commercial center of ancient Rome. Staff are working to take an inventory of artifacts in the more than 100 storerooms. Every Friday through July, visitors can admire the antiquities during 90-minute guided tours. Park officials also hope to renew the initiative. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A performance celebrating traditional values. Shen Yun Performing Arts wraps up five performances in Purchase, New York. We'll be back with audience feedback and more soon, here on NTD News. A journey to ancient China with legends and folklore displayed in dances accompanied by live orchestra. 
Over the weekend, Shen Yun brought five performances to purchase New York. Here's what the audience had to say. In a tranquil hamlet in Westchester, New York, Shen Yun Performing Arts is bringing locals a taste of 5,000 years of traditional Chinese culture. For many, it's a first. I think it's fantastic. It's beautiful to look at. It's wonderful to listen to, to experience all of the dancers and their magnificent bodies and the technique that they brought in. And learning about the culture I've never experienced. The amount of energy that comes from that show and the skill level that's required in order to, to pull that off is extraordinary to, to me. I've never seen anything like this. Because I was a former fashion designer, I understood how beautiful the costumes were, how difficult they were to make, and how fluid the forms were. The way the costumes were designed was not, not only made them absolutely beautiful and forwarded the narrative of the story, but they were aesthetically so pleasing as well. Gorgeous. Shen Yun's artists believe uplifting their own moral character is the key to creating beautiful art. Pastor said that message came through the performance. Well, I like the way they did the visuals with the video and the acting and combined, and it, you get a, a real sense of, of how everybody felt. I think that the, you could really feel compassion and empathy towards everyone in there. That's my biggest takeaway. This was a celebration of life and traditional values. I loved it. I was so happy to see so many children here tonight. There were generations. Every generation was represented. It's the heart and the soul that causes that to be able to be performed. And they do it exquisitely. I, I'm sorry, I just don't have words. I, I, I really don't. It really did take my breath away. Spirit, it's um, sort of ethereal. Um, it brings out images of spirituality for me, personally. Well, I'm very inspired and very uplifting, and it's a great, great show, and there aren't really enough superlatives to say what a terrific, terrific show that I've put on, and I suggest everybody should try to see it. Following the performance and purchase, Shen Yun is scheduled to take the stage in Stamford, Connecticut. NTD News, Purchase, New York. From the arts to healthy living, NTD's Gina Marie brings us a new episode of Strong Mind and Body. She looks at soil depletion and what it means for you. When you bite into broccoli or enjoy an apple, you're probably thinking about how they taste or that you're eating something nutritious. Here the growing problem of soil depletion is robbing us of the nutrients in our food. What does soil depletion mean to you and your family and what can you do about it? Soil depletion can be explained simply. It's when nutrients that contribute to the vitality and fertility of the soil are taken away and not replaced. Depletion of soil can occur for a number of reasons including soil erosion, excessive cultivation and poor soil and agricultural management. This results in reduced crop yields and a loss of nutrients in the foods grown. More than 50% of agricultural land in the world has experienced some degree of soil deprivation. Crops need certain nutrients such as phosphorus, nitrogen and sulfur. Otherwise, photosynthesis is compromised. The end result is that fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds and grains are deficient in vital nutrients. So what can you do about soil depletion? Here are four simple and easy ideas. 
one thing you can do is talk with your wallet. Support farmers who practice organic sustainable farming. You can go to farmers markets or visit the organic section in your local grocery store. Number two, much can be said about growing your own produce and herbs. Country folks have plenty of room for a plot. Apartment dwellers, on the other hand, can have standing and hanging pots with fruits and vegetables. Many urban areas have neighborhood gardens where residents can stake out a plot and grow produce. Number three, when you choose your local organic produce, be sure to eat a wide variety of colors daily. To deal with nutrient depletion in our foods, variety is key. Explore white mushrooms, red tomatoes, leafy greens, yellow squash, blueberries, and eggplant. When you eat the rainbow, you get diversity in your diet and a better chance of getting the nutrients you need. And finally, number four, consider adding nutritional supplements to your daily routine. Take an inventory of your dietary habits for several weeks and identify which nutrients you may need to add. Blood tests can also help. Festivities and celebration in Italy's floating city of Venice. Hundreds of people gathered in St. Mark's Square to form a giant rosebud. This giant red rose is part of a traditional holiday on April 25th. On this day, men in Venice would send a blooming rose to their beloved as a token of love. The tradition is said to have begun with a tragic tale of Maria, the daughter of a nobleman. Her lover died in battle, fell over a rose bush, and with his last breath begged his friend to take one rose to Maria as a farewell gift. As the tale goes, Maria was found dead of grief the following day, with the same rose on her chest. Spring has sprung at London's Kew Gardens. The manager of Garden Design says the hard work preparing the flower beds over previous months is finally paying off. The best place to view cherry blossoms is at Kew Gardens' iconic temperature house. Beneath their boughs, tulips are sprouting from vivid reds to deep purples. There are more than 50,000 plants spread out across 300 acres here. The gardens will have three new flower beds to provide home to some very forward-thinking planting. Last year, Britain was hit with its hottest days ever on record, with the mercury topping 40 degrees Celsius in July. So Kew Gardens are looking at more drought-tolerant species. We're going to end the show today with something that sounds a lot like a joke. A moose walked into an Alaskan movie theater last week, and he helped himself to some popcorn before casually leaving. Surveillance cameras captured the moment the four-legged moviegoer entered the lobby, roamed around, and had a snack. The shop assistant seemed quite calm and started to film the animal. There was another person nearby trying to startle the moose away, but to no avail. According to local media, the moose arrived at the cinema in the evening and stayed for a few minutes and even ate out of the trash. Thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to share any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. I'm Chris Beers, NTD News, New York City.